0: Well, hello, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. Uh, this is our second uh, virtual head school on, on Zoom. We're, we're on the frontiers of technology here. And uh, our subject today is Henry Grattan, 200 years on, a misunderstood legacy, question mark. The most noted and certainly the most eloquent of the 18th century opposition patriots in the Irish Parliament. Henry Grattan reached the height of his popularity with the concession of legislative independence in 1782. 19th century constitution nationalists would later refer to it, until its dissolution by the Act of Union in 1800, as Grattan's Parliament, despite his almost permanent position on its opposition benches. In truth, its independence was a sham, and its inability to reform itself or grant Catholic emancipation led to the polarisation of the 1790s and the bloody rebellion of 1798. By now a marginal figure, figure, he spoke eloquently but in vain against the subsequent Act of Union. Less well known is his return to Parliament, this time in Westminster in 1805, where he served until his death on the 6th of June, 1820. And to mark the the bicentenary uh, of his passing and reassess his often misunderstood legacy, uh, I am joined by David Dixon, Uh, Professor Emeritus of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin and I'm sure there are many listeners out there who like myself took his excellent Dublin in the 18th century course uh, over the years. We're also joined by Patrick Gagan, uh, who is uh, currently Professor of Modern History in Trinity College and of course Patrick is also presenter of the award-winning Talking History and in which capacity I, I do step in the odd time. I'm Patrick representative on earth you might say and um, and we're joined by a regular uh, history ireland uh, head school panelist uh, sylvie kleinman who's a visiting research fellow at trinity college uh, where she taught a course on ireland in the age of o'connor which uh, spanned the course grattan's life and legacy and finally uh, tim morta uh, also trinity college this is a, a trinity college stitch up by the way from start to finish i'm also a trinity man myself of course and we do promise that at other institutions uh, get a look in in subsequent head schools. we're joined by Tim Murta, who specialises in the history of Irish radicalism in the 18th century. And Tim is currently uh, an archival research fellow with the Beyond 2022 project. That's this um, marvellous... Uh, Digital recreation of the public records office destroyed back in, in uh, 1922 when the four courts went up. And if you want to find out about that project, uh, get the latest issue of History Ireland magazine uh, because there's an article uh, on that very project. And uh, this hedge school is being supported by the archives service of Wicklow County Council in association with Bray Coolin Society. And, of course, Wicklow, not only is it the Garden of Ireland, it's (coughs) the biggest county in Ireland, if you flatten it out. Uh, Now, to get us started, um, David Dixon, uh, could I go to you? Uh, Could you talk to us a little bit about Grattan's family background?
1: Thanks. Um, I mean, Grattan died a Wicklow man, but he was very much a Dubliner, as were his uh, forebears. Uh, He was a Protestant Dubliner, a, a college boy, Trinity College boy, uh, who was uh, guided to a legal career uh, by his father, but in fact he was involved with Parliament either as an observer or a member for well 50 years of his 70 plus uh, years of life. In other words, I think. Grattan is so central to the history of the Irish Parliament in the 18th century that it, it's almost difficult to uh, separate them out. I just thought it might be useful to say a word or two about the the Parliament itself. I mean, it, um, it had 150 constituencies, most of them with very small electorates uh, or privately controlled. Uh, it was very much an assembly of the Protestant Irish landed gentry, uh, but What makes it so uh, interesting in the era we're thinking of today is that from about the 1760s there were a small minority of those uh, members of parliament who were uh, very uh, articulate. They came to be known as the Patriots, Uh, roughly about a a sixth of the uh, parliamentary membership uh, Dublin-centered figures, uh, debaters, advocates of reform, advocates of a rather different type of power structure within uh, Protestant Ireland. Uh, a patriot figures there who uh, had a mixed background, but uh, most of them were self-made lawyers, Yelverton, Curran, and, of course, Henry Grattan. Grattan is the, the, the one uh, figure who I suppose represents Uh, The group, uh, Church of Ireland, in his case, uh, many of his relatives, ancestors were clergymen, his maternal grandfather, Lord Chief Justice, his father, the law officer of Dublin Corporation. And yet, like some of these other patriot figures who come into Parliament, uh, Grattan did not have... uh, the silver spoon uh, he, he wasn't a person who inherited wealth indeed he was partially disinherited by his father uh, and indeed he had a very awkward relationship with his father until uh, the the latter's death when Grattan was still in college uh, and uh, the the kind of life that was uh, opening up for grattan when he uh, uh, as, as a young man was uh, really somewhat bleak. Uh, he lacked, certainly, the, the kind of pa- patronage that uh, many of his uh, college uh, uh, colleagues would have had. Uh, he was a somewhat vulnerable figure, um, a trainee lawyer uh, in London with no taste for the law. Uh, he was rather a poet uh, and uh, he loved drama. Uh, so he enters Parliament almost by accident in, the, the year of the uh, outbreak of the, uh, of the year on the, on the very eve of the American Revolution, when he becomes the patron of the most uh, senior patriot figure, uh, the Earl of Charlemont, he comes into Parliament as a young figure who really makes his mark by his own abilities as a debater and as somebody who was very effective in learning the parliamentary game. Perhaps I should hand over at this point.
0: David, can I just come in there? Because yeah, uh, he was um, originally MP for Charlemont, right, for, for the first yeah. fifteen years. Yeah. Now Charlemont is the, the village in, in Amherst, uh, I presume. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, could this be classified as, as a rotten borough? You know, oh, the, very you, much
1: you a, a, a private constituency of the of the Earl of Charlemont. There is the irony that he was very much uh, not the first who, one. I'll tell you what, at
0: this stage, before we forget it, I, I, I just going to go through the various constituencies he served for, because yeah. it, it is interesting. Um, and I've forgotten this, because we normally associate Grattan with, with Dublin. So yeah. from, from 1775 to 1790, that's 15 years, yeah. I mean, and, and this is his most prominence period, he's actually yeah. the MP for Charlemagne. Yeah. He's MP for Dublin City then from 1790 to 1797, yeah. 98, depending on how we, how we come back to that. He then serves briefly for Wicklow Borough, uh, 1800-1801, hence the, the Wicklow connection. Uh, he then serves in the uh, Westminster Parliament for the constituency of Malton, which is in Yorkshire, by the way, uh, Edmund Brooks' old constituency, interestingly. And again, that's another rotten borough, a Fitzwilliam borough, I believe. Uh, and then he serves for Dublin City again in Westminster from 1806 to 1820. So that's that's a, a, a parliamentary career spanning 45 years. Anyway, we, we've got that out of the way. Uh, Patrick, could I go on to you? Because I want to get back to the, the just away from Grattan himself, uh, and to just the political narrative of you know, the events of the late 1770s, the American War of Independence, um, and the lead up to, to 1782. Well, I think Grattan became an
2: MP at precisely the right time. He became an MP in the autumn of 1775, and you see, Uh, the American colonies were in rebellion. Uh, France entered the war in 1778 and this was a time when there was great uncertainty and, and fear in Ireland, a fear of a French invasion, uh, a fear in Britain that Ireland might go the way of the American colonies and, and Britain was vulnerable. You have a series of military defeats, the defeat of Cornwallis at Yorktown in 1781, and, uh, you had the rise of the volunteers. Uh, ostensibly to defend Ireland in case of invasion, but really able to then, uh, in a way, almost threaten the British that if they didn't grant certain reforms, uh, then uh, there is that danger that Ireland might go the way of of the American colonies. So uh, Grattan was able to articulate many of these uh, demands and did it quite brilliantly, as David has said. A great speaker, a superb orator would spend uh would see every speech as, as a great performance, would would spend days preparing the speech, would learn it off by heart, uh, would deliver it with great passion and energy. And when he made some of his most famous contributions, for example, uh, demanding free trade in 1779, uh, his, his famous speech for the of independence in 1782, uh, these were these were great performances and these were great orations. And uh, Grattan denounced the fact that Britain kept troops in Ireland, but then took them away as soon as they needed them elsewhere. And he complained that Ireland was just a barracks where the army would leave in time of danger. So uh, in a way, he was the person who was able to kind of capture the mood of the country at this time.
0: Now, it was said of uh, Lord Charlemagne when he claimed that he raised the, the volunteers and it, it was said back to him that the volunteers raised him. Uh, could the same be said about Grattan? I mean, in other words, like, was it the, 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 the backing of the volunteers really catapulted him to his position rather than his eloquence?
2: I think it was a combination of everything. I think it was also the fact that he was there at the right, he was in the right place at the right time because he could have been making these great speeches at a different time but there mightn't have been, they mightn't have resonated or they mightn't have had the impact. The same way the volunteers wouldn't have much of an impact if the American war hadn't been going on or if there hadn't been the threat of a French invasion. So it was kind of the coming together of all of these things. And it made him, I suppose it gave him that position of prominence that uh, he was seen as the chief of the people.
0: Right. Sylvie, can I bring you in here? Because um, there's a question of Grattan's his media profile. I mean, it's very modern. right? Uh, he seems quite good at promoting himself. Just talk to us a bit about that.
3: Well, what's extremely interesting, first of all, what Patrick has just been talking about, he is elected and enters politics at a time, if you're looking at Western European, France, Britain, and America, there's an electricity in politics. New things, there are new ways of doing politics. And there are also obviously now the American model, self-made men. Now, he is actually very famous by the time he's 33 or 34. One of the ways in which you project this image is magazines. Now, these were boring black and white, but Walker's Hibernian, which was published at 79 Dane Street, in August 1780, in other words, a few months after his first speech, April 1780, moving the uh, motion that will eventually bring about legislative independence, they publish an account of the life, he's only 32, 33, and character of the celebrated Mr. Grattan, with an elegant engraved likeness of that patriotic orator. Now, The question you're asking, who would have seen the print, the portrait? Certainly not Tim's artisans. And in a moment we're gonna talk, Tim's gonna tell us about how he became a popular hero, I hope. So in the liberties and the cottages, you might not have seen, but in the window shops, all around College Green, all around Dublin Castle, all around Grafton Street, of booksellers and lottery ticket sellers, they would have advertised the magazine and the print, the portrait, which you could probably buy separately. And I'd hazard the guess that the working people, the artisans, the laborers, the women out selling oysters or bread or Molly Malone's knew what he looked like. This right, I was asking the question. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It's so unprecedented. So in America, you're going to get Benjamin Franklin, but then George Washington. Henry Grattan, by the age of 34, 35, is already a publicly known figure and already recognizable. Now, just the one point that David made, in 1782, after the... um. Passing of uh, legislative independence and the very famous speech. The European magazine in London publishes again an article about him with a likeness, with a portrait. Now, in this portrait, he's speechifying, he has his arms outstretched. But they say, I quote, Mr. Grattan owes his present popularity and eminent respect in which he stands with his countrymen entirely to his own virtues. So it's already the idea that through his own abilities and obviously Charlemagne's patronage, he is a self-made man. One more final point, and there are other images of him that we'll speak about. After the passing of legislative independence in 1782, his confreres of the bar, the gentlemen of the bar, had resolved to erect a statue to perpetuate a remembrance of the saviour of the country. Grattan very modestly declines the honour. So this is quite extraordinary. Usually it's only kings or military men at this stage, military heroes. It doesn't happen. But before he's 40, that they might erect a statue to him. This is really quite exceptional. In Ireland, it's totally unprecedented.
0: Now, it was said in the 18th century that coal porters didn't go to work before first reading the news. Right. Tim because uh, uh, Sylvia has, has uh, set this up nicely for you. What was his relationship with the you know, the, the mob, or the, the crowd, as, they, as they're more politically correctly referred to these days? Because Dublin had, had a, a reputation for fairly lumbustuous kind of municipal politics, you know, riots and so forth. Uh, Where did the Grattan figure in all of that?
4: Well, you're right. I mean, Dublin did have a very politically engaged uh, crowd going back decades. Indeed, um, a tradition that's respond back to Several of the figures that Grattan took inspiration from, people like Charles Lucas in the 1740s and 1760s and so on. Uh, but his reputation amongst sort of Dublin artisans in the 1770s, 1780s, uh, in the way that crowds can be fickle, his reputation shifted uh, according to circumstances. So, for instance, in 1779, at the height of the sort of free trade uh, agitation, Grattan is an immensely popular figure. Uh, free trade in 1779 is seen as a sort of panacea for a lot of ills from uh, struggling industries in Dublin. Uh, there's a non-importation agreement, uh, an agreement amongst sort of the consuming classes of the middle and upper classes in Dublin, not to consume British goods in uh, in favour of locally produced manufacturers. You know, Grattan is involved in that, makes him incredibly popular. Um, his sort of the acquisition of the so-called Constitution of 1782 again sold somewhat as a panacea for economic ills again, makes them quite popular, but that can shift, can shift with the economy. Uh, 1782 to 1784, sort of, you know, the first two years of so-called Grattan's Parliament is economically a very tough time. There's several harvest failures. There's a a manufacturing recession in both Britain and Ireland. Uh, And soon enough, you hear shouts in the streets that a free trade has instead proved to us a free curse. There is a renewal in 1783 for calls for another non-importation agreement, just to not consume British goods once again. And Grattan is actually opposed to that. He actually finds himself on the opposite side of that very economically popular measure. And the crowd targets him. At the end of 1783, (laughs) basically about 50 men gather outside Grattan's rented lodgings in Dublin, essentially hoping to intimidate him, if not do him bodily harm. As chance would have it, he's actually out at dinner that night, Sort of word gets back to him what's going on at his home, and he sort of quite wisely uh, doesn't sort of stay away for a little while. Um, so you know, it, he's not always popular. Uh, similarly, uh, I know this takes us a little bit further. In 1783, 1784, the volunteers, which had started off as you've, uh, as you've implied, as a relatively middle-class, relatively elite-led organization, begins to become almost proletarianized in Dublin. You have sort of workers, journeymen, artisans joining these volunteer companies. And graddon is not all right with this. He has a quite sort of uh, um, sort of idea of what the proper social order is. He he writes that the volunteers had once been the armed property of the nation were they now to become the armed beggary. Um, so he's not always sort of simpatico with the crowd. Now, that said, later on, I mean, we can get this later on in the podcast, by 1790 when he's elected to the Dublin city seat, he's immensely popular. He's actually sort of, uh, his, his election, along with uh, uh, his fellow candidate, uh, Fitzgerald in uh, 1790 is sort of you know, treated with processions of artisans and all sorts of uh, 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 sort of uh, crowd activities. But, you know, you it, hold, uh,
0: could you hold that talk, Tim? Because I want to come back to the 1790 election uh, shortly. But before we move on from 1782, I want to go back to Patrick here about his famous uh, Spirit of Swift speech. And maybe you could you know, tell listeners, explain what did legislative independence actually mean in reality? Well, in
2: some senses, it was more of a symbolic change than any real victory. But it was uh, a significant achievement in that for the first time, it seemed that the Irish Parliament was going to be in charge to a certain extent of its own affairs and its own destiny. Up until then, there was always that sense of of humiliation that it was subservient to the British Parliament and the British Privy Council, that it wasn't able to legislate for itself. Now, of independence didn't really uh, secure the, the ideal that, that Grattan and others uh, claimed it did, or that it was subsequently uh, said to have done in the 19th century. But uh, it, as symbolism went, it was very powerful, and Grattan was awarded £50,000 after he made that famous speech on the 16th of April, 1782, that had those famous lines about spirit of Swift, spirit of Mm -hmm. Molyneux, your genius has prevailed, Ireland is now a nation. Now, it's quite possible and quite likely that he never actually said those words at the time, that this was one of the speeches that he rewrote afterwards for posterity and probably rewrote it after the Act of Union, and Grattan did have a fondness for uh, later rewriting his speeches because we do have a very different version of the speech in the uh, the Parliamentary Register for the for the time, and uh, those lines don't appear. In fact, it's a it's a completely different speech. But regardless of what version was the correct one, we do know that it was a brilliant speech. It was well regarded at the time. He was voted the fifty thousand pounds. Pass- In the 19th century, this period came to be known as Grattan's Parliament, but in a way, that's part of the myth about Grattan as well, because he was for almost the entire period an opposition figure. He wasn't able to secure many of the the, the things that he wanted. And even some of the great achievements of that period, such as the Catholic Relief Act of 1793 that gave Catholics uh, the right to vote, uh, that was pretty much imposed on the Irish Parliament by the British government because they needed the support of the Irish Catholics in the war with France. So so there's as much of a myth going on here as, as anything else.
0: I mean, the basic problem was that once Parliament was unreformed, it meant that the London government could still control blocks of votes, no matter how theoretically sovereign that Parliament was. Now, just on the question of Grattan's Parliament, do we know who first coined that phrase? And I presume this is a 19th century phrase. Anybody there come in on that? Like, who coined the phrase Grattan's Parliament? Was it used at the time, for example? David? Um,
3: Tommy, may I just say something? I think one would need to sit down with all the books that James Quinn went through to write uh, Young Ireland and the Writing of History. Possibly is from that period that they start packaging it. Can I just say something extremely briefly about two further contemporary views, images of Dublin. Obviously, of Grattan. My bigger pardon, the iconic painting by Francis Wheatley of the Irish House of Commons that actually represents his first speech in 1780, but most people associate it with the granting of legislative independence in 1782. It's It was reproduced in the 19th century, black and white prints, a a key was issued. But when you look at the painting, it's very busy. There are a lot of people and they're public, they're ladies up in the gallery. Grattan is dwarfed by all of this, but he's actually the focal point. And he's only in his, he's not even 36 at that stage. April 1780. It's it's quite extraordinary. And I think that's what most people associate Grattan's parliament with posthumously and incorrectly, as Patrick has just outlined, because there were many, many other issues. Now, very briefly about the grant, £50,000. This didn't escape the wicked pen of the cartoonist, James Gilray in London, who served conservative interests and there's a wonderful cartoon called Irish Gratitude. The first three letters are important, Irish Gratitude. And Grattan is seen about to hand, reaching his hand out to the Speaker of the House of Commons. They have just voted him the grant of 50,000 pounds. It's already the beginning of a cult of Grattan because conservatives, and this will become London-based, uh, are at him. Also, continuously. It's not only just a positive cult. Now, David,
0: sorry, can I come to you, David, on the question of in terms of the, the, that 19th century war, you know, that warm glow around Graffes Parliament? I mean, there was an economic bounce uh, subsequently, late 80s, 1790s. Um, to what extent was that, you know, it, that was obviously linked in the, in the minds of these constitution, 19th century constitution nationalists? But um, it, was it the economy issue, or is that mm-hmm. a, a, a coincidental?
1: Occurrence. It's one of those things we could debate happily because there's arguments for and arguments against. I mean, it's quite clear that the Irish economy didn't suddenly just wake up in 1782 uh, and then uh, collapse uh, with the union. Uh, the years though of the, uh, of Grattan's time as an Irish MP were, uh, as Tim has been saying, uh, a mixture but you do have roughly 15 years from about 1784 till uh, the early war years, up to about 97 or 96, uh, which uh, saw a number of very new things happening uh, and which, uh, in retrospect, were linked to the parliament, uh, such as the opening up of the canals or or, or the beginning of the the canals in the case of the royal, uh, the spread of the beginnings of... um, what we call the industrial Revolution in terms of mills, uh, the spread of new technology, uh, certainly the expansion of tillage farming in much of the uh, east and south of the country and of farm incomes, uh, certainly uh, creating a a change in the feel of small-town Ireland in the 1780s and 90s, uh, a time of public and private investment so that there was a sort of feel-good factor in uh, among many social classes in the Ireland uh, of the late 80s and early 90s. Now, was that anything to do with Grattan? Grattan was no economist. Uh, he may have read Adam Smith, but whether he understood the arguments uh, is another matter. And there were others around him, uh, like John Foster, Luke Gardner, uh, to, to mention, who most certainly did uh, do uh, understood economics and, and and were responsible for major changes, such as the foundation of the Bank of Ireland, the dramatic changes in company law, Foster's Corn, all of these things from the 1780s, which were, in a sense, very much the product of Irish parliamentary action. Only in the case of Porter, in the case of brewing, can we directly say that Grattan had a role because he was very much interested in the reform of the, the brewery laws. He was very friendly with the first Arthur Guinness, and I think the second. Uh, And uh, there was uh, certainly a a kind of persistent advocacy of changes, which eventually came about. And the the spread of some very large uh, commercial breweries in the 1790s uh, is certainly directly related to changes in excise. But the bigger question, can we say that the parliament associated with Bratton was the uh, progenitor of economic prosperity um, only in small part? The fact, I I think if you look at the records of that parliament, I mean, there's an awful lot in its uh, proceedings and committees to do with economic development in those years. This was a busy parliament and whatever about its limitations, uh, it, it had ambition to, to use the language of the day to improve the country. Tim, you want to come in there?
4: Uh, no, it's actually just to say what I mean, David sort of beat me to the punch on that one, that, you know, as going off the point that's been made several times today, I think we be made several more. You know, Grattan as the, you know, sort of the inveterate opposition politician, other less historically renowned or less popular figures. I mean, David mentioned John Foster there, who are sort of sometimes cast as the baddies in nationalist historiography, arguably have more responsibility if there if there is responsibility at the parliamentary level for sort of the economic good fortunes of the 1780s and 1790s.
0: Tim, can I give you, as soon as you're speaking, can I move on to the, uh, the 1790 election and just tell us a little bit about the type of constituency Dublin was because it, it did have a, a, a substantial electorate, unlike Charlotte, right? So uh, something approaching what we would recognise as, you know, democratic politics, uh, I, I use that word advisedly. Uh, just give us, give us a flavour of, uh, and the fact, that, of course, that um, it was a, there was no secret ballot. I mean, how were votes conducted, particularly in Dublin?
4: Okay, you have no secret ballot, but you do have a fairly, like you say, large electorate, Yeah, you know, somewhere around the range of 4,000 voters, which for a single constituency in the 18th century is quite expensive. Um, you have people who are unable to vote uh, who are artisans because they're you know, full members of, of guild membership does bring voting rights. So they are not counted. Yeah. So, right. I mean, you have a socially broader um, yeah. uh, a constituency in Dublin than elsewhere. And it's well known as such. I mean, I mentioned earlier on Charles Lucas in sort of the mid-century period, uh, there is a, you know, a well-earned reputation for sort of proto-democratic politics, if you want to call it that, in
0: like Dublin. The very scum of the people, I think, is, is a quote that sticks in my mind. Yeah,
4: well, there yeah. you go. So, uh, the, yeah, uh, and and obviously uh, there's there's more uh, prestige uh, for Grattan yeah. if he's got a seat in a constituency like Dublin than if it's a pocket borough. Mm. Um, and 1790 is his chance to sort of uh, to gain that. By the way, that's something that'll come back again sort of the story repeats itself in the 19th century, when originally in 1805 he's for Fitzwilliam Pocketborough who wants to get back to Dublin City, because he, he says, and this is much later in the 1800s, he says, uh, his election for Dublin City would make him more of an Irish minister. You know, now, interpret that how you, how you see fit. This,
0: One thing strikes me is that if in retrospect, 1782 seems to be the pinnacle of Grattan's career, right? At the time, though, I'm assuming that the election of 1790 would have appeared to be the, the, the pinnacle of his career. Sylvie, would you have anything to say about that? You know that he now has a, a you know, a popular mandate behind him. Not that that would have concerned Grattan, it seems to me, but it, it is nevertheless a fact. So, Sylvie, does 1790 particularly mark the, the height of his, his fame and his prestige?
3: I I will confess I haven't been studying that period as much. I jumped ahead to the Fitzwilliam, to his involvement in the appointment of Fitzwilliam and obviously the way things go downhill after that. So,
1: David, do you want to come in on that? I mean, the 1790 election is an extraordinary uh, event. I mean, it, it, and it's one through the newspapers and indeed the magazines that gets probably more coverage than almost any other, certainly urban election in 18th century. And and it's, you know, Lord Edward Fitzgerald's elder brother and Grattan against two establishment uh, uh, candidates. And uh, given the peculiarities of the constituency, it wasn't a close-run thing, but certainly it wasn't an easy battle. But the big issue then wasn't uh, uh, perhaps what we might have thought in terms of the religious question. It was over the policing of Dublin uh, and the attempts by the Dublin castle to have a much more um, intrusive and castle controlled police force over the old parish watch system uh and uh, i mean there were lots of other issues too uh the french revolution doesn't play much part in the as far as one can see in the the kind of the arguments that g- gave rise to uh the victory of uh of fitzgerald and, and grattan um but i mean tim is absolutely right the the, the the uh the victory did give uh at least in the short run uh, added legitimacy to to Grattan. Uh, but, I mean, re, in fact, the new parliament very quickly became uh, affected by events in France and by the upsurge of the, uh, the, the, the kind of question of, uh, of Catholic uh, relief. Um, and perhaps on that, I mean, Grattan plays a rather kind of interesting hand between, uh, 17, between the victory of 1790 uh, and his clear-cut support for full... Catholic political rights in 1793, and it's a three-step march. Tim, you want to go back in there?
4: Well, I mean, I'd say, I'd agree with David that, you know, the the coverage of the 1790 election doesn't have a lot of direct references to the French Revolution, but there's certainly enough going on in that election in terms of the sort of the popular constituency that will sort of tar Grattan with a brush others will use throughout the 1790s. So, uh, for instance, out upon his, his and Fitzgerald's election, there are celebrations where they're both chaired into the House of Commons and College Green with a procession of artisans playing music with tunes like See the Conquering Hero Comes. Uh, but there's also a slightly nastier undertow to it. Uh, like David said, one of the big issues in that election had been Dublin's police, a centralized sort of state controlled police force. Uh, Grattan is seen as an opponent of it. And in the aftermath, there's attacks on police stations. Uh, There's rumors that there are gangs of artisans roaming Dublin streets, yelling out five pounds for a policeman's head. And this is eventually brought back a sort of Grattan somehow responsible for this, or it's part of his sort of campaign. The fact that one of the big sort of organizers, even indirectly, or certainly fundraisers for Grattan and Fitzgerald was a certain Napper Tandy, a sort of, you know, byword for sort of, you know, the firebrand of Dublin radicalism. uh, It's something that will come back to haunt him in subsequent years.
0: Well, yeah. it just going to be on to the, 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 the fact of the founding of the United Irishmen the following year, uh, then in, in late 1792, the Catholic Convention, uh, the emergence of the defenders, uh, their suppression. So is there a sense then that the, the, the action, the political action is moving out of parliament now, that the, 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 the genius is out of the bottle, that politics is abroad amongst the masses of the population? And in many ways then that... In, in some views of Grattan that this is seen as as, as negative development. I mean, uh, Lecky it seems to me, for example, uh, it's almost like Gr- that that it all goes wrong. It all goes pear-shaped, right? And, and things uh, polarise and radicalise and Grattan is left, uh, you know, in the middle. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is, is that a, a fair reading of it? That's think-
4: reading history backwards, though. That's reading things from sort of the second half of the 1790s into their inception. Um, I mean, yeah, in
0: sem- of course, but, but it's it seems it's a very it's a very um, uh, plausible view, though. It's a view that that, that seems to have, have taken hold. David, would you have a view on that? That that this view that 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 Grattan wasn't listened to, you know, that more, more extreme voices uh, took over, and then of course you had the outbreak of war with France, seventeen ninety three, which polarizes matters even further.
1: But if we can just do a counterfactual and imagine that Fitzwilliam had. Come at the beginning of 95 and stayed in office for six months, not for six weeks, uh, and that Grattan's role in getting through uh, Catholic emancipation had indeed come about. I mean, these are not inconceivable things. Um, you know, even if uh, there'd still been uh, something of a, of a kind of move from 95 forward, I mean, I think a lot of our reading of Grattan comes from, Grattan in the 90s, comes from the the kind of missteps, and to some extent, the misfortunes. I mean, Patrick was emphasizing the importance of good timing and perhaps even good luck uh, in in, in Grattan's earlier history in 1779, 1780, 1782. Uh, Grattan was possibly unlucky in the early 1790s uh, and made some perhaps bad judgments. Uh, and, and certainly, he believed in the uh, latter part of 1794 that this um, emollient figure from the new war coalition was going to come to Ireland and, you know, really cleanse the stables and 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 uh, solve the Catholic question. And he believed that Fitzwilliam's, uh, you know, uh, time in Ireland would be lengthy. Um, and Grattan, of course, was absolutely wrong in that, uh, uh, but I mean was that a misjudgment or just bad luck i don 't know, but I think certainly the events of those weeks and months between uh, November december ninety four and the bitter spring of ninety five uh, really color well certainly colored grattan 's view of the world, but it colors perhaps our view of Grattan uh, a little bit as well.
0: Yes, I just wanted just to bring maybe some of our listeners up to speed here what we 're talking about here is the the, the aborted viceroyalty of of uh, Fitzwilliam. Uh, I think many people, including historians, would see that as the last constitutional chance we had or the last chance we had of, of constitutional change before things uh, slid towards um, you know, the, the, the rebellion of 1798. Patrick, can I bring you in here, how close, because Grattan seemed very adept at avoiding taking any political responsibility or office throughout his life. How close was he to actually being in office in 1795?
2: He said he didn't want an office, but he did begin sitting on the government benches when Fitzwilliam was appointed, and he came out in favor of the war with France. And uh, he was effectively acting as the spokesman for the administration so that when he brought forward his Catholic relief bill in February, everyone thought that this was effectively now the policy of the administration and that it had the blessing of Fitzwilliam. So in effect, he, without claiming that he wanted the role or that he had the role, he did effectively become the, this man, and almost the chief minister of the, of the Fitzwilliam Viceroyalty in the House of Commons. But he made misjudgments, I think. I think Fitzwilliam made appalling misjudgments and really uh, didn't understand what the Prime Minister, William Pitt, was asking of him and moved so quickly in removing people from office that he didn't like, and pressing forward with emancipation, that I think whatever assurances Pitt had given Grattan and Fitzwilliam during their dinners and private meetings, I think that although there probably was some talk about Catholic emancipation at a certain pace, uh, they weren't expecting it to go as as quickly as as Grattan and Fitzwilliam were moving. So I think... I think, it, as Lecky said, it was a tragic turning point in Irish history because expectations were raised in Ireland. But I think uh, Fitzwilliam really was responsible for his own sacking because he left uh, he left the Duke of Portland, his, his 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 party leader, no choice but to support Pitt in dismissing him.
0: Well, obviously, you're you're putting the blame on Fitzwilliam here, right? But does Greville prove himself to be inept as well? I mean, you know, I mean, the point is obviously it's a mark of any politician. And opportunities arise, they take them, you know. And and can can we point the finger at Grattan and say that in this case, he
3: didn't step up to the mark? Sylvie, do you want to come in on that? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that the whole reason why we're looking at this is because he is seen as the single most important political figure of the end of the 18th century and of the end of the Irish Parliament. But around him, and Patrick made the point, there's meant to be a whole change in officerships and appointments when Fitzwilliam arrives, because they want to get rid of the castle system, the older Ponsonby system. And Grattan is not operating on his own. I mean, who, apart from us, have ever heard of George Ponsonby, for example? He's a very important person in terms of this chess game of politics. Um, and Gratton... Tensions, you know, within his own political grouping. But I think the two important things before we move on to um, violence and rebellion, and an and extremely dramatic phase of his career and of Ireland's history, um, Patrick and David had made the point: public opinion, expectations, they're now completely shifted from that 1790 election because prominent Catholics. Petition Fitzwilliam. They're not directed by their bishops. They're not directed by Lord Kenmare and the aristocrats. There's far less deference to the aristocrats and to the old way of doing things. So there's a new way of doing politics, a new way of lobbying, and lobby groups um, like that committee of Catholics who go to see Fitzwilliam, uh, and again are pictured or depicted in the press. Um, Grattan is a little bit maybe losing the grip because it's a new way of doing politics. David, you want to come in there? Yeah, just a
1: point we before we move on, which is relevant to, uh, to what everybody's saying, is that uh, I mean, Catholic uh, leaders in Dublin uh, trusted Grattan, uh, certainly in uh, 93, 94, 95, uh, for reasons nothing to do with 1782 or 1780, but for uh, the, the slow... A relentless way in which he had uh, pushed certain major issues forward, and particularly the issue of tithe, which had been very much a sort of central public uh, controversy in the mid 1780s. This is the, the uh, contribution made by by every landholder to the uh, Church of Ireland minister in each parish, and tithe had been controversial long before that, but there was particular agitation in the South, in Munster and Cork in particular. Uh, And Grattan became, uh, from 86, one, in fact, the most important parliamentary uh, champion of reform of the system and trying to introduce instead some kind of more uh, uh, acceptable um, sort of lo- local parish tax. And I mean, some of Grattan's speeches in the Irish Parliament on the tithe issue in the late 80s are incredibly long and detailed. And I mean, he was almost an obsessional champion of tithe relief. And while he had absolutely no effect in terms of tithe reform, it did, I think, build up his uh, standing within the, the, the kind of the Catholic politicians, and that to some extent explains that the trust that they had in him in the kind of whitewater days of94 and ninety five
0: now I want to just move on and uh, uh, Sylvia has already alluded to this, which is that meanwhile uh, everything's going to hell in a handcart. you have this drift towards uh, the rebellion, um, and it's means reckon well, some estimate thirty thousand people were killed in it I mean the whole thing is drowned in blood. Um, why does Grattan get tired with the rebel brush and all of this? So, because he—he he, he seems he does.
3: Well, what I haven't had a chance to look through, but only recently discovered, um, there's a pamphlet war against him, 97 to 99. So there's an article in uh, 18th century Ireland. Um, he's seen on the fringes of radicalism. Now, don't forget in London, Fox as well is so you do have very prominent people you have arthur o'connor who was an mp who goes further than many other people um grattan let us not forget gives evidence at arthur o'connor's trial for treason in may 1798 but o'connor even though acquitted is not released and three months later he will then give evidence In return for which he can go into permanent exile, he's banished to the secret committee of the House of Lords. Gilray, again, doesn't let Grattan get away with this. So he's not the only one, but he is in Ireland, the main, mainstream, middle of the ground politician that they're wanting to pin radicalism on. So there's an Irish character, a cartoon by Gilray, 1798. Grattan is seen in his lawyer's robes. We're going to see soon, very soon O'Connell, uh, and he's giving evidence at the trial. So I think there's a political witch hunt of him.
0: What were his attitudes towards the United Irishmen?
3: Just one thing, and then I'll let the others speak. But for example, it's only very recently that the letters of Francis Higgin, the informer for Dublin Castle, have been published. Now, we need to take this, obviously, you know, with a grain of salt. He's trying to sell information. But in 97, before Grattan spends more time in England than in Ireland and not in Wicklow, which which was an extremely tense place to be, uh, according to the informer Francis Higgins, he's meeting Richard McCormick, he's meeting Sweetman. No, that doesn't mean he's agreeing with what they're doing. Maybe you know he's acting as a linchpin or trying. But nonetheless, I think there are things that we just don't know. Um, but this being said, the pu- the public image that we retain uh, is that he's flirting. I think it's it's a bit of a conservative um, witch hunt against him, and I don't think he was actually involved in the rebellion in any way.
4: Tim, do you want to come in on that? Sylvie makes makes a good point about sort of, uh, you know, he he has, you know, very wide circles of friends. Dublin in the 18th century is a small enough place by our standards Uh, in terms of sort of the elites. Yeah, he is probably, you know, meeting or at least friendly or in conversational terms with a lot of people who are skirting the edges of sort of uh, revolutionary conspiracy. Um, But then again, you know, the United Irishman initially was a very broad-based organisation with, you know, with a very moderate wing and a radical wing. Uh, no, Sylvie's absolutely right. One thing I would say, though, is to a certain degree, it's inevitable that Graddon is sort of picked upon by conservative pamphleteers and, 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 and sort of polemicists. Uh, in 96, 1796, 97 Gradon is one of the biggest sort of opponents or most vocal opponents to a quite draconian series of sort of insurrection, anti-insurrection acts that are brought in. They're called the insurrection acts. They're essentially sort of state security apparatus uh, fairly sweeping powers given to the state and to the military to sort of uh, root out disaffection. Grattan is a vocal opponent to it. And in sort of that veer towards rebellion and violence, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us, uh, naturally Grattan becomes a target. I mean, it will eventually, his sort of disillusionment with that situation will lead to his withdrawing from Parliament in 1797.
0: Would it be true to say, though, that the, the whiff of sulphur did his reputation no harm subsequently, you know, uh, which we may come back to at the end. But I tell you, I want to move on to, to Patrick uh, Patrick, why does he resign then uh, as an MP in, in 1797?
2: I think that because of, despite all of the later mythologizing of this being Grattan's parliament, he was someone who became a largely marginal figure and he hadn't been able to achieve many of the the things that he had wanted. He saw it as a, as a borough parliament. And uh, I think he was really disillusioned. You see a similar withdrawal in England by Charles James Fox and others. So I think it was a recognition of his frustrations. He wanted out and he only returned three years later in 1800, dramatically, because uh, the Parliament was, its existence was under threat and he was determined to fight to try and save it.
0: Just before we get, we get on to his, his return, right? I mean, it, he, he retired from, as an MP in 1797. He's dismissed from the Privy Council He struck off the roles of the Guild of Merchants. And worst of all, his portrait is taken down in Trinity College, Patrick. Tell us about that.
2: Well, the story of the portrait is really uh, quite hilarious. Uh, And as David has mentioned, he was a huge reformer for Tithe reform. And uh, a portrait of Grattan was commissioned by Trinity in the 1780s. And by the time it was finished, they decided not to put it up because uh, of his campaign, uh, about tithe reform, so uh, it only ever went up in 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 the seventeen in 1795 when Fitzwilliam uh, was made Viceroy, and and it looked like Grattan's fortunes were up. And apparently there were more heated debates in board in the 1790s about whether to put the portrait up or not than about any other issue. Uh, but by the time they finally decided to put it up, uh, I think Grattan had been sacked. So uh, then they didn't know what to do with it, but they kept it in storage just in case. Grattan made the comeback.
0: No, I'm reminded of the unveiling of the portrait to, to Robert Emmet by de Valera back in from the 60s sometime, because Emmet had been expelled from the college, right? Um, uh, but, okay, so he's, he resigns as an MP, right? So if he resigns in 1797, why does he make a comeback in, in 1800? And he, and he does it by buying a seat. Again, rather ironic, given his, his views on, on parliamentary reform. He, he buys the, the, the seat for Wicklow Borough. So Tim, you know
4: how and why does he make that comeback? So are you talking about the, the, the comeback in the union debates or what? Yeah. On so well, union debates. Me, I mean, I think, think, think that we can that, make
0: another eloquent speech against the Act of Union.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. That's it. I mean, I think, like, like Patrick was saying. I mean, this is. I think he's even quite aware at the time. This is his legacy. The idea of legislative independence and its threat is you know, a very personal one. Um, you know, if he's achieved nothing else, if he has been the, you know, so the inveterate. Opposition politician. What else is there? Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it it is purely an anti-union platform that, that that sort of prompts his comeback.
1: David, you want to come in on that? Well, just to say, in in, in the family history, in, the, in in the son's great five-volume collection on, on on his father, uh, the emphasis there is that it was uh, his mother, it was uh, Grattan's wife Henrietta, who uh, encouraged Grattan to go back and defend his institution uh, at the time of, of the Union debates. Now, how true that is, uh, we, we, we don't know, but certainly uh, I think there's a sense that Grattan was himself very, dis- very very unwell oh, oh, and dispirited oh, oh, oh. in uh, England in 1799. And uh, there were those who were encouraging him to come back in, uh, and he did require, it seems, okay. uh, quite a bit. Of- now, um, I'm
0: reminded of Frank Sinatra, uh, because it seems that Grattan made more comebacks uh, than Frank Sinatra, because... He, he makes his first comeback in 1800 but then of course the irish parliament is abolished by the act of union and i think that from any listener's probably that's the hero of henry grattan but in fact uh, tim he, he he makes another comeback then in, in 1805 when he becomes uh, mp for malta this this uh, yorkshire constituency in the, the westminster parliament why does he give it another go well
4: actually it's it's odd so he's he's in ill health uh, and sort of around this period He does sort of retire to to where he describes being, or his son describes him, you know, burying himself in the mountains of Wicklow. Um, But he is being solicited right through that time by his old buddy Fitzwilliam. Uh, Fitzwilliam offers him a seat in Peterborough in the summer of 1801. Uh, Fitzwilliam and others in his circle are encouraging him perhaps to run in Dublin, where, you know, his previous success would seem to make an election certain. Uh, County Wicklow is sort of uh, perhaps sort of hinted towards him in 1802. Um, but in any case, he sort of he, he turns a deaf ear to all of this. He wants to recover his health. Um, by the end of 1803, he's sufficiently recovered that sort of pressure is mounting within Whig circles that he might actually be uh, uh, willing to sort of step up to the plate and perhaps cinch some deal for Catholic relief. Again, he demurs. Only in April 1805 that he actually finally consents to Fitzwilliam's borough of Malton, telling me as you've noted, the old uh, seat of Edmund Burke. Uh, and of course, the continuities between Burke and Grattan, interesting to be made there. Uh, in fact, it's actually, uh, you know, Malton is Fitzwilliam's borough, and it's actually Charles Lawrence Dundas was actually asked to make way for him, and a very bid uh, by the Whigs on the Catholic question to sort of step aside for Grattan. Um, okay. So, telling me he isn't there for long, you know, Malton has never seen, I think in Grattan's, I don't think he ever considered it a permanent seat. It was sort of a, a, a temporary place to be to push the Catholic issue. As I said earlier, Dublin City would be the place he'd feel much more comfortable.
0: Just uh, I'll go back to Dublin City in a second. But how did Grattan, how did Irish MPs in general fare in in the new Parliament, you know, the, the the Westminster Parliament? Well,
4: of course, there's a reduced number of them. They go up to only well, less than hundred, or at hundred. Um, I mean, it depends it's, uh, whose testimony you listen to. Some of it's quite biased. Um, it, there does seem to be some consensus that the Irish style of oratory uh, of which Grattan was, you know, very much sort of considered the exemplar uh, was not always initially well received in Westminster. Um, The uh, description from Lord Holland of Grattan's first speech in 1805 uh, seems to say that his, uh, uh, his pronunciation, his gesticulation was sort of seen as sort of slightly an object of ridicule. And he says that if, you know, if it had gone on five minutes, Grattan might have been the subject of laughter, except that people sort of tune in to the message. He has eloquent turns of phrase, he's got some substance, so even though his presenting style is not considered necessarily the norm, uh, people do give him respect.
0: Actually, just so to on the up we it's been established that wide numbers of people knew what Grattan looked like. Hmm. Do we have any idea of what he sounded like in terms of his accent, his demeanour? Anyone any comment on that?
4: Well, again, that same description, I believe, refers to his accent, or not his accent, but I think his his way he pauses between certain words as having an almost Italian disposition, which is a very bizarre uh, description of an Italianate uh, 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 presentation. But other than that, I wouldn't have any...
0: No, but isn't it true that, that even members of the aristocracy would have spoken with an Irish bro? They didn't all have these plummy accents that we assume nowadays. David, you know, it just, it just that struck me, right, is for somebody who's a great orator, you know, you, you really, it is legitimate for us to speculate on how
1: he would have sounded. you know. I think one goes back to the beginnings. I think that where some few people were educated in England, nearly all the Irish upper classes in the parliament. World were educated in Ireland, uh, mainly in Dublin and private academies and the college, and that is what would have shaped, I presume, the way they, their peers, heard them. But uh, I don't think we have much to go on, other than I, I, I think a sense that perhaps um, the perception that Flood was a, um, more equal to engineers than than Grattan mm-hmm. um, and had more impact in Westminster initially than than, than, than Grattan. Uh, but remember, Grattan had been, an, uh, you know, was a lover of drama and had been an amateur uh, on on private stage, and that must have, to some extent, uh, fed into the way he performed, even in the larger assembly in Westminster.
0: Now um, he eventually then uh, is elected MP for Dublin. Right, he comes back as MP. How had the Dublin constituency changed? I mean, is it, is it similar to the 1790s, or is it a different animal completely in terms of how elections were conducted and and uh, Anybody any comment on that, David or or, or, or Tim? Maybe. You know, what was the, what what was this? What were the circumstances of, of his election in eighteen o six to the Dublin constituency?
1: I mean, the big thing, of course, is that thanks to the uh, working out of the uh, granting of, of of the Catholic uh, franchise in seventeen ninety three, uh, there were growing numbers of, of freeholders voters as, uh, who uh, were. Initially, not as many, but then very close to the, the number of free men uh, as in, in Dublin city and in every other parliamentary constituency. So the whole kind of character is changed uh, when there is a, uh, a growing uh, Catholic vote.
0: I, I tell you, this raises, of course, the thing is that the, the Catholic emancipation, as, as, as it is now being referred to, is coming on the, the agenda. And of course, the new kid on the block is uh, Daniel O'Connell, right? Um, What was Grattan's relationship to this new emerging uh, Catholic movement? Maybe, uh, Sylvia, if you you want to come in on that?
3: Um, Yes, hoping that Patrick is very swiftly going to follow up. Now, the interesting thing is is that Grattan finishes his career more or less the way people like to think about it, as a politician and at Westminster. So arguably, you could say he's done the honourable thing you know, he's going to try to make the union work, the post-union reality work, but he also does get involved in promoting the Catholic question, but not in the way the new kid on the block, as you put it, wants it. So Grattan will initially only be interfacing with the, what I'm going to call almost the ancien regime elites, the self-appointed spokespersons, the aristocrats uh, and the hierarchy. Whereas O'Connell has a much more enlarged vision of who can speak out on Catholic rights and all the different Catholic boards and all this. So do we bounce grattan off what O'Connell is doing? Because O'Connell dominates the narratives of this period of the 1800s, 1810s, when we perceive not that much is happening. But nonetheless, Grattan is at Westminster and he is coming, uh, you know, in... Um, O'Connell is getting irritated about him and is talking about him. So in a way, Grattan is almost part of things. So it would be good if um, Patrick were to pick
0: up on that. You've been volunteered to respond to this point. I mean, can I one question is, did, did O'Connell... Care about Grattan's reputation. In other words, was O'Connell trying to co-opt Grattan into his cause, or did, did, he, did he give a fiddlers? I mean,
2: well, O'Connell O'Connell loved Grattan and really admired him. Uh, when he was asked who was the greatest person in Irish history, he'd say Henry Grattan, after himself, of course. <laughs> Uh, I think it played into O'Connell's agenda to idealise that period of 1782 to 1800. He would refer to it as the only period of Irish history. And I think he contributed to that mythologi- mythologizing of Grattan's Parliament by talking about the, uh, describing this as a period of great economic progress and uh, great liberality and kind of brushing over, ignoring aspects that were uncomfortable for example the fact that he is a catholic wouldn't have got the vote if that parliament had had its way and wouldn't have been eligible as a catholic to sit in it uh, but it, it suited him now even though he admired grattan greatly he did have a falling a falling out with him in the 1810s uh, grattan was prepared to accept certain restrictions the vetoes on on uh, to ensure a catholic relief bill might go through uh, O'Connell was against that at the time. So O'Connell, I think, by the 1810s, saw Grattan as more of an historic figure, a figure from a great and glorious past, but not someone who should be the leader of the movement now. So there was that break, and it shows how O'Connell could be quite ruthless and, and discard people who he felt were past their best and no longer of use.
0: I mean, O'Connell, in many sense, even physically, was a force of nature, with This big, you know, at the height of his powers, uh, and Grattan, on the other hand, is is in decline. You know, it's like the stars born narrative. You know, um, this 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 almost like elemental force alive. Tim, do you, do you want to come? I mean,
4: it's, a gener- it's a generational thing. I mean, Grattan enter- enters Parliament in the very year that O'Connell's born, seventeen seventy-five. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's twenty-nine age, twenty-nine years between them. Uh, O'Connell, I, I think Patrick probably will know the, ex- the exact quote on this. Uh, at one point, quite cruelly. Uh, takes a quote that Grattan had once said about Flood, that he was sort of an old Irish oak, too old and stout to be transplanted to sort of new circumstances. And O'Connell sort of applies it to Grattan, sort of, you know, he's a hero of another age.
0: I tell you, I want to move on to, um, uh, just to wrap up here, guys, just about his, his legacy and how he's seen, right? Sylvie, um, if you were to compare Grattan to, to a, a modern politician, Right. And if we take into account that somebody whose political career you know, spends 40, his parliamentary career spans 45 years, but he never actually gets into government, I mean, should we class that as a failure? I mean, would he be one of uh, Bertie Hearn's wafflers uh, in today's parlance?
3: Well, I think we need to assess him, I don't want to use the word judge, it, in the context of his times and in the context of the way politics unfolded so does he transition well you know o'connell is rising and other other irish politicians there's the english reform movement in the 1830s grattan is is now in heaven it's a new way of doing politics it's a far more professionalized way of doing politics it's far more precise it's less an art so i think we should leave grattan within the context of his times and within the style and the um, delimitations of the way politics went about, particularly uh, pre-union in Ireland. Uh, The other thing I want to say, getting back to Henrietta, his sons will perpetuate his memory, Henry Grattan Jr. We don't have a correspondence the way we have Daniel and Mary and even in Daniel O'Connell's correspondence with other people, with a range of political associates, he's privately deconstructing the events of the day, the events of the morning. We get a lot more about his private feelings. Grattan, we only have speeches, and some of them have been a bit spun for posterity, you know, um, as Patrick said, we don't even know the, the original. So we really only have a political figure. We don't know enough about family. We don't know enough. Uh, in courtesy to our listeners, about his relationships with his neighbours and how he ran his estate in Wicklow. Um, I think we should just leave him as he is and not try to expect that he should do more. I don't think he failed at anything. I think that's a a kind of a skewered question.
0: Mm -hmm. Patrick, is there a sense, though, that Grattan was, you know, retrospectively kind of co-opted into the, 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 the nationalist story, you know, of this kind of progression, um, and that he, you know that even the term colonial nationalism, one would wonder like would Grattan recognise such a term? Would he see himself in those terms?
2: Well, it's interesting when you go back to that rewriting of the spirit of Swift's speech. It ends with Ireland; it, those lines end with Ireland is now a nation, and it's not entirely clear what how he would have understood that Irish nation, even as he was revising the speech in the first part of the 19th century. For many of the, the Protestant ascendancy, the nation was the elite uh, Protestant ascendancy. Grattan probably saw it in, in broader terms than that. I think Grattan, despite, despite perhaps not achieving his great ambitions of 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 emancipation, uh, despite the destruction of the parliament in 1800 and 1801, I think there were enough achievements there. It's very few politicians who would have an entire parliament like that named after them. Uh, and even though it was spun and mythologized afterwards, Grattan was seen as the person who who came to articulate a, a sense of. Irish grievances in the late 18th century, uh, the demands for justice, the demands for uh, greater rights. So in a way, he captured, he, he epitomized the constitutional nationalist tradition for the 18th, 1780s, the 1790s, and then carried his mission through in the British Parliament in the 19th century. So it is quite a considerable legacy.
0: No, but has he been idiosyncratically being, you know, depicted as a Democrat, right? Tim, maybe I bring you in, in, in on this. And I, I'm not say this is a criticism, but I doubt he was. Was he?
4: No, I mean, like a lot of people of the day, he would have probably, well, not probably, he had sort of a distaste for the excesses of the French Revolution, um, things like the September Massacre in 1792, and so forth. Um, yeah. Someone who saw sort of um, a very strong idea for the need for social order. Um, uh for a culture of deference in many ways what you see in terms of his falling out with o'connell in the 1810s is very much sort of uh two very different ideas about the role of deference particularly catholic deference in sort of irish society uh no he has been co-opted i mean that's not to say he didn't perhaps have quite liberal views for the times in terms of the boundaries of the the political nation certainly in his uh uh support for catholic emancipation that's very significant but no, in terms of social terms, now probably quite restrictive by our era, but, uh, by our terms. But again, like Sylvie says, you have to judge him by the by the standards of his time.
0: Sylvie, can I bring you, you in uh, on this? Because it is Bratton part of the kind of soft focus package of Georgian, Dublin, Palladian mansions, you know, the trinity college front that whole kind of package almost at that, that touristy uh, and, and and of course we were both involved in that business ourselves that kind of touristy heritage soft focus package of, of 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 dublin and ireland in the late 18th century
3: yes i think well he's the only figure you know there are a lot of buildings a lot of very aesthetic neoclassical buildings but he the easy name that we associated associate with that period without many people vaguely knowing what it is that he actually did in the detailed way that we've just been discussing it.
0: But he, he would be, you know, if you were to stop random people on the street in Dublin.
3: safe pair of hands.
0: No, no but most, most of them would know who Henry Grattan was. They might, You know, it might be very vague on the detail, right? But he has this kind of positive image. Tell you what, David, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Could you just yeah. give, uh, give us a, a wrap up then uh,
1: on this very, very interesting discussion? Could I just sort of answer in two quite different ways. I mean, just following up from our discussion in the last few minutes, I mean, I think if you go back to 1779 and to 1782, I mean, you can say that things would have worked out differently if there hadn't been a Grattan. In other words, I think the power of his uh, speeches and his his political tactical skills in those years uh, led to a particular outcome that created um uh, certainly a more uh, capacious institution uh sitting in the center of dublin in other words while we've all been you know mulling on the limitations of that parliament the fact is that in, in many ways you could say he is the, the, the kind of the moses figure of irish uh constitutional um history or constitutional nationalism uh so in other words i think you have to say that grattan had Real agency in what happened uh, at the beginning of the 1780s, but uh, I just wanted to sort of turn to the man himself. I mean, Sylvie was saying that we know very little about the the private life of Henry Grattan and family, and that's that's certainly true. But there are, there are clues there uh, that I mean, I think first of all he was both he and his wife suffered greatly from ill health, uh, and his wife was an invalid for the last. Uh, uh, I think almost 20 years um, of their lives. They, d- they die in the same year, 1820. But the, uh, I-, I think unlike so many of his fellow parliamentarians, he was not in the business of building up uh, a-, a great showy exterior. He doesn't have a house in Dublin. Uh, as Tim said, he had an apartment. So he moves around different addresses. Uh, we know nothing about those places. But he did love Tannehinch. Uh, he did love the Dargal Valley. Even before he got the grant of the 50,000 from the Irish Parliament, uh, he and his own college friends were out there at the inn built by Lord Parscourt uh, up there uh, that becomes his house, uh, very close to the uh, Parscourt estate. And in all the rest of his life, after he buys the place or gets it in 1784, it's that love of the, the wilderness area around. Him. I mean, it wasn't a great estate. It was this, it was an area uh, of wilderness along the valley there. And uh, his son tells us how the father loved to sort of sit alone uh, in, in in abandoned uh, church ruins. I mean, you could say this is a romantic trope, but clearly, uh, I think there was uh, a love of privacy, and certainly no great desire to to make money out of politics or. Uh, out of his bequest from uh, the Irish Parliament. So in that sense, he's, he's an attractive figure. And he, the few travellers who wrote up their descriptions of visiting the Grattans at home talk about what an amiable household it was. And the word amiable has, I think, much more power in that era than it does, it does for us. Uh, you know, they were, uh, despite ill health, um, very loyal friends and, and a family, clearly, that uh, greatly uh, loved their father. So, in other words, Grattan comes through in some ways, perhaps a little bit saccharine, but in other ways, somebody who had integrity. Uh, and that, I think, made it easier for the generations after to look back to what Grattan did in public life uh, as being something that was honest uh, and that he was a person of, uh, relatively speaking, of high integrity, uh, uh, even though one could say that he did perhaps... Uh, fiddle the the speeches, he did perhaps add lustre uh, to his performance. But I think even that wasn't uh, necessarily personal arrogance, but a determination to try and make sure that what he was feeling uh, was best represented in the permanent record of the book.
0: Thanks for summing up, David. I, I think we can conclude that, that Grattan is one of the good guys of Irish history after all of that, right? Despite the, the, the question mark uh, in, my, in my title. Listen, I'd like to thank uh, our, our contributors here uh, to this uh, online head school, uh, David Dixon. Uh, Patrick Gagan Sylvia Kleinman uh, Tim Murta all uh, Trinity College as is myself but we do promise to give other institutions a look in in future head schools and uh, listeners do tune into our next hedge school which will be to mark the centenary of the Connacht rangers mutiny at the end of June and that will be up on our website in the next uh, couple of weeks or so so thank you very much for listening and we hope to talk to you again thank you very much